Good morning. Happy Easter. <laughs> he is risen. Alleluia. Our news cycles are dominated currently by Russia and Ukraine. Last year it was Afghanistan. Think of CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, whatever podcast or news feed that's on your phone. And sometimes the news cycle can influence or maybe even define our geography, our mental map of the world. That's true, it can be true for our geography, but also for our sense of history of the past, of trying to understand different parts of the world or our own context here. We may be very familiar with certain dates and facts of US history, but how familiar are we in Africa of what the pivotal time periods are or in the Arabian Gulf or in Indonesia, how familiar are we there? And then when we come to the question of how do we understand God's relationship in the complexities and the opacity of world events in nations, how, how are we to measure that? How are we to understand that? Much of our news has been showing Ukrainian refugees pouring into Poland. Many of us may not be aware that 900 years or so prior to the Christianization of Poland, Afghanistan had been a pretty much Christian place. And Turkmenistan and other countries, Christian long hundreds of years before the Christianization of European nations. Today, much of North Africa and Tunisia and Mauritania, Algeria, were in the first centuries of the Christian experience filled with Christian leaders and theologians and pastors and yet today the story is so different. There is a wideness of God's mercy and there is a depth of his witness. Our passage today comes from an author who, know, who knew a lot about what it was to be an outsider, someone who was not on the inside of Jewish theology or Jewish thinking. A Gentile physician who understood and had an intuitive feel for the fingerprints of God for those who were outsiders. He could empathize with a dying terrorist. He could empathize with a foreign military leader on Israelite soil. There's a wideness to God's mercy and a depth to his witness. And our theme this morning is the witnesses to all nations. Of course, God himself is the primary witness to himself. Luke, in his second book, reminds us that God has not left himself without witness. And yet, whether we like it or not, each one of his children, each one, is a witness to God himself. That's different from being a missionary. A missionary is someone who is identified, called, supported, accountable to a local church for a specific job. But all baptized believers are witnesses of the resurrection in salt and light, wherever they are, in their laboratory here in Boston, or their school, or their business, or at the ends of the earth. They are, we are to be witnesses to the resurrection. At the end of the 19th century, a delegation came from Qing, China, from the government to look at business models and economic opportunity 
from the United States. And one team visited California where they were looking at business models. And they asked the businessmen there in California, they said, well, we know that you're Christian. And of course, they were not Christian. They were probably Confucian or Taoist or so forth. And they said, we know that you're Christian and that your, teach, your scriptures teach that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. How is it then? that you exploit and take advantage of Chinese laborers on the railroad or in the mines or in the labor markets. Whether they liked it or not, those Californian business men and women were witnesses way beyond their perfume, way beyond their immediate vicinity. They were witnesses of something, and so are we. Well, our text shows this morning from Luke 24 how God takes a fearful, maybe a panic-stricken, little group, a marginal group, and turns them into witnesses to all nations. And we're going to look at our passage in three ways of how God himself meets a disoriented group in verse 36 to 43. They are disoriented. Second of all, in verse 44 to 48, how they are instructed. And finally, in verses 49 to 52, how they are empowered. Disoriented, instructed, empowered as witnesses to all nations. And then we'll conclude with some implication for us to consider today. So first of all, the disorientation of the disciples, verse 36 and so forth, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why? Do doubts arise in your hearts? They were terrified. They were startled, like the women at the tomb who'd seen an angel. They didn't know how to make sense of this. This risen Christ asked them these questions. Why, why, why? There was this inward turmoil within them, throwing them into confusion. Were they seeing a ghost? Was it a vision? Was it a real man? Was a who'd ever seen a resurrected man before? This was a new experience for them. They were jolted, this ragtag group. And it's fascinating to me to see how the risen Christ meets such a disenfranchised, such a fearful body. He meets them with his presence. He stood amongst them. Remember the Emmaus Road when Jesus' presence was there before they even recognized him. And sometimes with disciples, he can be there without the disciples even realizing it. He said, peace to them. Well, one thinks about the first words of the risen Christ to his disciples. Perhaps peace is not the first word that we would imagine him saying. Perhaps some scolding, perhaps some condemnation, perhaps some judgment for those who have abandoned him, those who've betrayed him, those who've denied him. And he comes to them and says, peace. There's a reconciliation here of the resurrected Christ with his disciples and even perhaps amongst themselves of that reconciled, restored relationship. And then he probes, why, why? 
The psalmist probes in Psalm 42 and 43, why are you downcast on my soul? Why so distressed within me? Why? Because the risen Christ is not content with surface. He's not content with appearance. He's not content with religiosity. He's not content with any of that. He wants to get under the skin. He wants to get beyond what is driving these people, what is the motivation in the heart of hearts. Why? Why are you downcast, my soul? And then he gives them permission. Touch me. See. He wants to bring them closer in. He doesn't want to keep them at arm's length. This God is a God of incarnation, Emmanuel, God who is with us. This God moves into the neighborhood. This God tabernacles with his people. This God says, touch and see. He's inviting them in. And then he gives to them proof. He takes a broiled fish and he eats it. The resin Christ comes to a disenfranchised, a despondent group. And he becomes central in their pain, in their perplexity. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times ran an article with an interesting title. How a cancer diagnosis makes Jesus' death and resurrection more, mean more. In it, a pastor from New York City was interviewed Timothy Keller was his name. He went to New York in 1989 to start a church. But recently, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he says, my wife Kathy and I spent much time after he had received this diagnosis with tears and disbelief. We had expected some illness to come and take us when we felt really old. But not now, not yet. This couldn't be. What was God doing to us? He said, it's one thing to believe God loves you. It's another thing to actually experience his love. It's one thing to believe his presence with you. It's another thing to actually experience his presence. My experience of his presence and love was going to have to double, triple, quintuple if I was going to make it. And then in light of Easter, he said, Holy Week gives you both death and resurrection, they don't make sense apart. You can't have the joy of the resurrection unless you've gone through a death. And a death without resurrection is just as hopeless. Essentially, death and resurrection are absolutely at the heart of the Christian life. Without any kind of suffering, with any kind of suffering, if I respond to it by looking to God in faith, suffering drives me like a nail deeper into God's love, which is what pancreatic cancer has done for me. You see, it's in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of struggle and perplexity and conflict that the risen Christ meets with his people. He doesn't want his disciples merely to hear, merely to believe, merely to recite a creed, merely to sing a song or a hymn. He wants to touch them. He wants them to touch him. He wants to encounter them more closely, more personally, both together as a community and individually as persons. And he himself can comfort them in their pain, through their pain, to actually feel the love of this risen Lord, to feel his presence. And then we read in verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy, 
They were marveling. They could scarce believe this risen Lord was in their midst. Well, we come to verse 44 to 48 about instruction. But the, the disciples had a problem. They had misunderstood the point of the last week. They had misinterpreted the scriptures. How foolish and slow of heart you are to believe all the prophets had written. The cross and its injustice and its cruelty appeared an accident, chaotic, unplanned. And yet we know that this was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God the Father. The Old Testament witnesses to the Messiah, not simply his victory and glory over the enemies of God or over the enemies of Israel, but also of his suffering. And it was that the disciples had missed. The risen Lord said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus as it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Every part of the Old Testament witnesses to Christ. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, these tripartite division of the Hebrew Scriptures, the only place in the New Testament it's referenced. Take the law, Genesis 22, for example, where Abraham has begun to offer his son as a sacrifice, and the Lord says, because you, Abraham, have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, indicating that Abraham's obedience is imputed to those who follow him. And so Christ, as the beloved son, offering his own life in obedience to the will of the Father, that those who follow him will have his righteousness imputed to them from the law. And then we have the prophets, Isaiah 53, 700 years before the crucifixion. We read in 53.12, he was numbered with the transgressors, cited by the risen Christ. I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled. He will be numbered with the transgressors. And then the Psalms, that expanse of the wisdom literature. Into your hands I commit my spirit, from Psalm 31.5. And then Christ himself, skewered on a cross, naked, humiliated, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We read in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's a fascinating little word, opened. It's part of a, a constellation of verbs in this passage that speak of interpreting scripture. That the risen Christ himself unlocks scripture. He is the true interpreter of scripture itself. And what he's doing here is he's giving the key to Scripture to his disciples. What qualified them was that they knew the risen Christ. Not the rabbis or the scribes or the Sadducees, but a ragtag collection of tax collectors, zealots, and fishermen. They now had the key of Christ himself, the risen Christ, unlocking the Scriptures. And of course, when he says the mind, he opens their minds 
We have to realize that to grasp an intelligent grasp of the truth of the scriptures that changes, that challenges, that redefines our understanding of ourselves, of God, of others, of the universe, this challenge is not simply cognitive, as if we were just brains on a stick. No, he's concerned with the whole person, the whole personality, the heart. Like Lydia in Acts 16, her heart was opened. Or like the eyes of the Emmaus Road disciples in Luke 24, or the ears of the deaf man in Mark 7. No, he wants the whole person. He wants an integrated person. He wants hearts burning on fire with love for God as he gives them the key to understand the scriptures. And Christ said, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Christ does something unprecedented. He links the predictions of the suffering of the Son of Man with the glories of the Messiah. It had been there all along in Scripture, but they'd missed it. They had not seen it. And so he brings that together. He is the key that unlocks the Scriptures. And it took the risen Christ to make it explicit. But what's the purpose of it all? The purpose we see in 47 and 48, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You, you are witnesses of these things. It's fascinating that the prophets predict, as we read in the Isaiah 49 passage, not only the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Messiah, but also the calling of the Gentile nations, of all nations, to repentance and belief forgiveness of sins, that there's a continuity between the history of salvation in the Old Testament for the Jews and the history of salvation for the world in the New. There's a continuity between God's hope and aspiration for all nations in the Old Testament and the justification of the inclusion of the redefinition of the people of God in the New. This is the definite and foreknowledge plan of the Father for all nations, that Jerusalem now becomes the sending off point for this missionary movement into the world. No longer centered on a building, no longer centered on a liturgy, no longer centered on a land, but centered on a message of good news that would form a new multiracial, multisocial, multiethnic people of all backgrounds, people with all kinds of longings, a barren couple, infertile, wanting a child, Luke 1, 5. Fishermen who have empty nets, Luke 5, 4, and 6. A bereaved mother crying over the death of her son, her only son in Luke 7. This message transforms, this message connects with the needs of a broken and dying world. Instruction, it comes from the scriptures. Well, as Pastor Mark mentioned, we had the privilege last month to spend some time in some Islamic contexts in the Middle East. And I remember looking out over <clears throat> some of the landscapes, the urban landscapes, and seeing so many mosques, and thinking of Philip Jenkins' words that Christianity has had such a profound impact on Islam. It can be traced to its very roots. Even, even the shape of the mosque is mirroring the very shape of the churches of the East from the early centuries. And Ramadan, which many uh, Islamic communities are 
practicing at the current time is in many ways influenced by the Christian tradition of Lent. The Quran itself, its texts and, and complexities and so forth can be traced back in many ways to the liturgies and the lections of the early Syriac church. Well, we had the opportunity to meet some men and women from that part of the world. And I remember hearing the story of one refugee, a woman from Sudan, coming from an Islamic background. And her story helped us to appreciate some of the complexities of mission today, but also of the pivotal role of instruction of scripture. You see, this lady in, was in an, a very unhappy marriage. Her husband beat her. And in anger, on one occasion, she said to her husband, if your religion sanctions abuse, I'm going to change my religion. I'm going to become a Christian. Well, soon after that, she had a dream. And in the dream, a man in white called to her and said, why do you call on my name, but you do not believe in me? Well, at the time, she was pregnant and she was afraid her husband would hurt the baby. So she asked Jesus to protect her baby. Jesus reached out his hand in the dream and said, I will protect you and I will protect your baby. And he marked on the baby a sign of the cross. And quite remarkably, when the baby was born, they discovered a birthmark exactly on the spot where Jesus had marked a cross in the dream. And there was this birthmark of a cross on the child. Well, she contacted a neighbor who was a Christian witness to her to, tell, to ask her more, who is this Jesus who I have met in my dreams? And the neighbor pointed her to the scriptures. They studied the Bible together. And eventually she came to believe in the gospel and was baptized. But her husband continued abuse. He was enraged. On one occasion, he placed a Quran and a Bible in front of her and said, you must choose. If you choose the Quran, you will stay with me. But if you choose the Bible, I will send you away. She chose the Bible. And then he takes the Bible away and locks her in a room for several days with a Quran. After some time, she was tempted to deny Jesus that she had come to believe in. She had another dream. And in her dream, she picks up a Quran. The Quran itself turns into a snake and bites her. She tells her husband, I cannot turn away from Jesus. Obviously, she's in dire straits. The enemies of, will be those of her own household, as Jesus said. But some others, these friends, Christian friends, came to rescue her and took her out of that home. Well, her family were refugees from Sudan, from the war in Sudan in this other Middle Eastern country. And they had had an application process to, uh, by the US government to be approved as uh, refugees to the United States. Well, one day her husband called her on the phone and, and, and said, look, if you denounce Jesus and go back to Islam, we are approved now as a family to go to the United States. You can come with me. And she told him, I don't want America. I want Jesus. You see, the scriptures played a pivotal role in her life. It was the scriptures that gave her confidence in the face of persecution. It was the scriptures that was the foundation for the training that she was re receiving through uh, one of our Park Street missionaries, and who said that she was the best trainee they had in church planting among the Muslim community there. It was the scriptures that instructed 
that burned within her and gave her life. But there's more, verse 49. And I am sending, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The disciples would be thrust out across the nations. Tradition has it that Thomas went to India. Mark was, was killed, martyred in Egypt. James went to Spain, Bartholomew to Armenia, and more, farther afield. We have historical documents that cite the expansion of the mission church from Iraq to the Caspian and to China in the 8th and 9th centuries. One document speaks of the Holy Spirit. In these days, the Holy Spirit has anointed a metropolitan, a Christian leader, for the Turks. And we are preparing to consecrate another for the Tibetans. But what strikes me is the involvement of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the empowerment of the disciples. God the Father had promised the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 32, 15, the Spirit is to be poured out upon us and from on high, and the wilderness will become a fruitful field. After the resurrection, the risen Lord himself sends the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And right now, we wait in this 50-day period before Pentecost to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. This power comes upon us. It takes us up into the very presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father plans, the Son implements, the Spirit applies. There's a beautiful symmetry about the mission of God in the Trinity, interconnected as they embrace these disheveled disciples and bring them in to their fellowship, into the dance of the Trinity, where there is absolute life and beauty and love and light, where they live with each other in all eternity and are present into the world and accessible to creation and the gospel in time and space. They're present to the world to give knowledge of the Father and the Son, but ultimately it comes through the Son. And human knowledge, whatever background people come from, from Arabia or from South America or from the African continent, whatever human knowledge we may have, it's insufficient to truly know the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Father and the Son must reveal themselves in truth and grace, and he does it as part of his plan, part of his will for all the nations. And Luke gives us a huge record in the book of Acts of how this pouring out of the Spirit, of being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, how that gets played out in history that shakes up the ancient world from Jerusalem to Rome, and the history continues today. Ordinary people called for an extraordinary task. Ordinary people as witnesses to the resurrection. Well, where does this leave us. Jesus said repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And when we consider the nations today, it's so confusing, so difficult to get our heads around it. The wars and the tumults that Christ said, do not be terrified. These things must take place, but the end will not be at once. How are we to see God's witness in the nations of today in such conflict, such trial, such hardship and suffering? Well, it's not new. I think of the, the chaos and the warshed and the war and the bloodshed that happened in, in Asia, in, in Korea, 
just over 100 years ago. Japan had just defeated Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, and then Japan took over Korea as a protectorate. It was in this confluence of world events and social change and so forth that a revival broke out in Pyongyang, now northern Korea, in 1907. Today, Korea is a place of, of Christian mission, a powerhouse of Christian prayer and thinking and worship. It all began there with two women, Mary White and Louise McCulley. Two women missionaries praying together, inviting others into prayer, inviting some of the leaders to prayer. One of them, a leader who came to pray, realized that he had to confess his failure and his cause before his fellow missionaries. It was deeply painful and humiliating, this confession. He had racial prejudice against Koreans. He was not filled with the Holy Spirit. It was confession that drove him to his knees and to cry out, and that God used that pouring out. Thousands came to know Christ in that revival in North Korea and spread all around the world. We're still experiencing the after effects of that explosion of Christian love of the Holy Spirit. And we at Park Street Church are part of God's mission to the nations serving as humble witnesses among the nations, however complex or daunting those situations may be. Some of us may use our professional skills, maybe in education or business or law, or in, as students in countries of the world where Islam or other faiths are dominant, or where there is a political dictatorship or fascism. Such nations are not beyond God's reach. And some are called specifically as missionaries serve as Bible translators or to serve the supporting work of the growing churches in parts of the world where there are very few churches or Christians. There are so many creative and imaginative ways to serve our God. Could be going on a short-term mission trip. Could be reaching out to your neighbors here in our midst. God brings the nations to our doorstep. How are we to be a witness to them here? How are we to be a witness to those in our laboratories and our companies, in our schools and campuses. Maybe God is calling some of us to quintuple, to beef up our witness in love and mercy to those from other nations. Well, he comes to a distressed and broken people who are half-taught, who've half-heard, who have no power. And every baptized believer is called to be a witness. Last Sunday, we baptized several folks here in the congregation. It was a joyful event. Each one of them is called to be a witness to the resurrection and to learn what it means to be salt and light in their neighborhood or farther afield. And Luke had provided for us an example, an encouragement of how the risen Lord meets distressed, broken people, half-taught, on empty, how he comforts them, stabilizes them, instructs and empowers them to be his witnesses both here and to the ends of the earth, both now until his return as the ruling and the reigning king. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow to you, every tongue confess you are Lord. Help us to live today under your lordship, 
for every part of our lives to be transformed by the Holy Spirit from inside out. Take the broken pieces of our own lives, reconcile us to you, reconcile us to each other, help us to be filled, clothed with your power, that we may be true and faithful witnesses to you in our generation, and we will give you the glory and the power and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.